Welcome again to the Lord's house. If you're watching online, we want to welcome you as well. We are glad to have you here at this time as we wrap up the series, Who Is This Man? There's also an accompanying book by uh, uh, Lee Strobel on this topic. I'm sorry, it's Ortberg on this topic. And uh, we encourage you to pick up a copy of that book too. Many of you already have. And, and it's, a, it's a great book that will reinforce some of the things we're talking about here this man is a, a life-changing man who came to earth not only to bring about our salvation, but also to grant us life that is life to the full. That's how he described it. I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. He wants not only for you to be in heaven someday with him, but he wants this life, this time, to be also uh, special and blessed uh, for you. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts, Lord, everybody engaged at this moment. May they honor you and be submissive to your prompting. Uh, we might take what you would uh, offer and, and find the fullness of life that you would have us experience to the benefit of others, uh, to your glory and to our blessing. We pray in Christ. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I still look for heroes in life. I still look at people uh, to be admired, people that I want to grow up and be like. I've always done that in my life, and I think it's a, a good process, you know, to say there's a quality about that person that I really admire, and I like to get to know them better and like to get to know that quality better as well. Uh, there are a lot of things I admire about great people. One of the things that I think especially uh, is to be admired is lifelong learning. Truly great people uh, understand the importance of lifelong learning. They're always trying to figure out something new. They're always pressing forward in life as long as they live. In fact, Henry Ford said, anyone who stops learning is old. Whether they are 20 or whether they are 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays forever young. It is a key to youth. Uh, Albert Einstein the more I read of him, the more I read about him, the more I admire him. Uh, a man who understood the value of God in life and uh, even was curious about Jesus, although himself was uh, of a Jewish mindset. He said, once you stop learning, you start dying. I never taught my pupils. I only provided the conditions in which they could learn. You know, just provide opportunity for great people to learn. And they will do that. They will learn. Now, it doesn't require that you uh, accomplish something profound in life. You know, not all great people are known beyond their own sphere of influence. Uh, my grandma Sunderman had a tremendous influence on a generation of people. In fact, she is still a big influence in my life, and she's been gone from this world for a time. But uh, she was one of those people, she didn't even have a high school education, never had a driver's license. And, and yet she had a profound impact on people. She was a lifelong learner. She was a farm gal, and uh, after they retired from the farm, moved into town. Uh, she lost her sight because of diabetes. Uh, she was still the most positive and optimistic person you could ever be around. Uh, she would tell my grandpa how to cook. And uh, he would be her, her eyes and her, and her hands. And uh, still had an incredible life. And then the Lord called him home. 
that was a tremendous loss to her, but she didn't miss a beat. She just kept right on going, moved in with my folks for a time until her uh, diabetes required a double amputation of her legs and she needed medical provision and so they put her in a place where that she could receive that and, and still she was vibrant. Uh, I remember going to visit her when I was still in school and uh, she asked if I could find the Bible on cassette tapes so that she could listen to it. She was a part of the Library for the Blind and she got, she received in the mail books every month and still read, you know, through uh, cassette tapes, first records and then cassette tapes. And, and she still had somebody, they'd have to come in, can you imagine the ordeal? You know, she's, she's overweight, she's blind, she has no legs. They had to put her in a harness, they had to crank her up, move her over to a wheelchair, drop her down, and they would take her to a current events class where they would read the newspaper and they would have conversation about what's going on in the world. That's the kind of lady she was. And I just thought, man, I need to grow up and be like her. You know, you don't have to be great in the world to have an influence. And she still has an influence over all of her grandchildren uh, who still survive and are raising children of their own. You know, I've enjoyed learning. And it doesn't matter what you learn. It's just important that you learn. A few years ago, uh, my son had always wanted to hunt big game in the mountains. And, and uh, he was living in Texas at the time. I was living in uh, Missouri. We had never spent any time in the mountains. I mean, we had driven through the mountains occasionally and not even very often. But we said, we're going to do this. And so it required learning. We had to read books. We had to talk to people, some in this congregation who helped me and passed along their information. We had to learn about uh, new uh, rifles that would be used in the mountains to shoot greater distances. We had to learn about ballistics. And we had to learn mostly about the kind of gear that you had to take up there. You know, the kinds of tents, sleeping bags, boots, and uh, how to read a satellite GPS because we were going to be miles away in an unknown country and how to apply that to a map. It was fascinating, you know, and you were fully alive, believe me, you know, when you realized you'd put yourself in that situation, you had better learn. And then a few years ago, we had also uh, decided that we needed to pay some bills for our kids who had gone through college, and so we began to rehab houses. I remember I was living in a very nice house at the time, and the congregation probably thought I was crazy. Sold that house, bought two houses. Both of them needed rehab. You know, didn't know a lot about that, but I'd seen my dad do a lot of things. I'd learned a lot of things. I knew there were a lot of people in the congregation could help me. Took some classes, learned how to lay tile. Learned how to stud out a wall, you know, went and talked to engineers about various things. You know, I remember Carol's face when I, I cut out a sliding glass door in the back of a house that we were rehabbing and just punched it out and put plastic over it. I said, you see, honey, I, I saw that they have these French doors for sale. Man, this is going to be awesome, you know. And, and she says, are you sure? And it turned out just wonderful. You know, this idea of learning, no matter what you're learning, you know, even now, as I grow older, I'm interested in metabolism. I'm interested in healthy living. I'm interested in the, the value of exercise. You know, continue to learn. Although I'm not so sure about that. A friend just sent to me a note saying good health is just um, the process by which you die more slowly. You know, so. <laughs> she also, a, a medical doctor, said don't worry about growing old. It doesn't really last that long. So, I, you know, she's. <laughs> trying to provide encouragement to me, but it doesn't come across that way. And, and I think it's true spiritually, too. Shouldn't you want to still learn? In fact, one of the projects I'm doing in, in my new redefined role here is I have a little more time, and so I'm writing again. I'm writing a book called Man in the Middle. It's about a guy who's investigating things that are confusing to people today, like the questions of race, of gender, you know, same-sex marriage, the, the, 
the question of longevity in life, the question of faith. You know, do those who have no faith in Jesus, do they suffer the same eternity as those who are not far from the kingdom of God? You know, what's all that about? I still wanted to learn, and so I'm studying that right now. And in fact, I've just completed my, my first section, five chapters on the question of race. You know, I've just asked myself, where did race come from? You know, is that in the Bible somewhere? And, and uh, I know that there are some theories about it, you know, from scientists and, and sociologists. And, and, and so uh, at the end, uh, this guy is a retired journalist. And, and in the book that I'm writing, it's a novel. It's the first time I've ever written a novel. And uh, so he investigates these things, and God sends an angel to him. He puts people in his life, and he teaches him uh, things that are true from the Scripture. But he does it. You know, this guy isn't especially a strong Christian. You know, he goes on Christmas and Easter, and, and so God has asked him to be a modern-day prophet. So it's kind of fun to put him in this learning position. And then at the end, he writes this blog, and then people respond to his blog. And so their first chapter is about race, race to judgment. It's called the blog. And he starts out with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. You know, of course, quoting from the Declaration of Independence. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then I add the word, powerful words, but are they true? And then you got to just put yourself in the mind of somebody who doesn't believe in God. What would he say about that? He would go on to say, the founding document of the United States boldly declares that all men are created equal. Is that just another way of saying on the first day of the season all teams are tied for first place? You know, it may start out that way, but it doesn't last for long. How ironic that Thomas Jefferson, the author of those words, was a slave owner until the day he died. Does that make any sense? The same document also declares all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The word unalienable is rarely used today because it means impossible to alienate. In other words, it's impossible to alienate or separate someone from their God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Really? It's every person's right, but it's not every person's reality. Slavery is not dead. There are 20 to 30 million people living in slavery at this very moment, endowed by their creator. Seriously? It's a great concept in theory. And then this guy in the book says, so... Why is the truth so different than the creator's ideal? And why is reality so contrary to what is right? Who, what, and how did the creator's intentions get hijacked? If this truth is self-evident, why isn't it practiced? Why is racism and prejudice so epidemic in the world? Pre-sale orders are now available online. That's all I'm saying. I'm just, just teasing you. I'm not even going to talk about that. But I, I think you should be curious about things like, what does God have to say about that issue? Truly, not just what do you believe God has to say, but what does the word have to say? You should be spiritually motivated to check things out. And that's what I love about the story today. This guy had a question. And he had an opportunity to be with someone who was thought to be wise, Jesus, in spiritual matters. And so he asked him an important question. It's a familiar story, but it's... I think there's more to the story than, than what you might normally have taken away in Sunday school. Uh, it's an example of a spiritual seeker. It's in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, and here we go. You can look online in your uh, smart device, open it up to the Bible app, and this will show up. Uh, or you can pick up that book in front of you or can follow here on the screen. Beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert, this was no dummy... And in the law, he doesn't mean, uh, you know, jurisprudence. He means an expert in the scriptures. Stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, 
what must I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? Notice he was testing Jesus. He had his own idea about that. He wanted to see what Jesus would say. Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Just go do that. And you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. You know, he wanted to go and do that. And so he asked the question, so then who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus told him a story. He said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went their way, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the opposite side. Danger, danger. So too a Levite. Now, a Levite and a priest. Let me just say that uh, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. I compared it last night to, to being Irish and living in Boston. Uh, you're either a priest or you're a policeman, probably. Or at least you have some of those people in your family. You know, it was kind of like that. You know, they were of a a certain clan. Uh, Levites, there's no tribe of Levi throughout the Old Testament or throughout the New Testament when the tribes were established. The Levites were spread across the land, and they were chosen by God to be religious instructors to all the other tribes. And so they were dispersed. Uh, throughout the land. And so he was either a priest or he was at least of a priestly family. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, again, some understanding about Samaritans, uh, Samaritans were not Jewish people. Uh, They were people of uh, Arabian descent. When the ten tribes to the north had been displaced by Assyria, when they came down, we never heard from them again. They were taken into captivity, never to be heard from again. But the way people conducted war in that day was they would displace these people and make them slaves in another place. Then they would take the people of that place and they would put them back here. And so that's what they did. And so they took some other people uh, and they placed them where the ten tribes of Israel had been. And there was a belief that the God of Israel was in charge of that land. And so they brought back priests to teach these people of Arabian descent the Jewish faith. So they were not Jewish, but they believed in the Jewish God. The Jews despised them because of it. Racially and religiously, they despised them. And so Jesus holds up a Samaritan as an example of goodness. You can imagine the challenge it was to this uh, religious leader. Uh, So the Samaritan came by, and as he traveled, he saw the man, and he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil on him. He gave him some wine, and he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He was a generous man, even though he's a foreigner. Even though he was a a person despised by Jews. Then Jesus asked him the question after telling the story. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan that you despise, was truly a neighbor to that man who fell among thieves, the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, pretty obvious, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do what that man did in your life. You want to save yourself? Go and be that guy. Who is this man? Jesus. Now we would answer quickly, he's the Lord and Savior. He's the long-promised Messiah that came into the world according to all the Old Testament prophecies and all the specific ways that it was predicted that he would come. There's no doubt that he fulfills those promises. That makes him without a question the one that was promised to come. And he lived his life. And he showed us not just his mission to bring about our salvation, but he showed us the values of God as he interacted with people, all kinds of people, religious people, people far from God, people in need, people who had wealth. You know, so we learn a lot about the nature of God by his interaction throughout those three years that are described in the scriptures, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he died. He died because he gave up his life for us. The Bible puts it this way. He became sin who had never sinned so that we might receive his righteousness. He took our sin upon himself, suffered the punishment for sin so that we might be called the children of God. And then he rose again from the dead, making a way to heaven for all of us. Who is he? He's my savior. He's my redeemer. You know, that's why we worship him. But if that's all he is, people who come to that understanding say, well, I know that. Therefore, what need do I have to be in the word? What need do I have to continue to be active in Christian fellowship or in regular worship or to hear Christian songs or to listen to Christian sermons? I already know that Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to heaven. And I say, I feel so sorry for you because he's also the author of life. And he has come to reveal the most important things about life that will make your life better now. And you sell him short. And you sell yourself short if you don't understand these principles that he wants to unpack for us. And so in these stories, we find values that can make a difference in our lives and the lives of others to God's glory and to our benefit. And this is no different. He was wise. And there are things that we can learn from his wisdom. First of all, Jesus refused to argue about the faith. Now, I think most faithful people, and it seems like the more faithful you become, the more proficient you become in theology, the more proficient you become in argumentation. And that's not the way of Jesus. You know, it, it boggles my mind that people who are very mature in the faith want to constantly argue about faith. And In fact, some radio stations that purport to be Christian, that's all they do is put down other Christians about what they're wrong about. Or other people about they're wrong about. Jesus did not do that. It doesn't mean that he compromised the truth. He advocated for the truth, but he didn't enter into arguments. You know, wisdom in his approach to people that we should apply in our own life. Dale Carnegie, uh, who wrote this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, in 1936, by the way, a book that sold over 15 million copies, had this to say about arguing. Why argue with a man? You'll never win an argument, because if you lose, duh, you lose. But if you win, you actually lose too. Why? Well, you may feel fine about having bested him, but how does it make him feel? You have made him feel inferior. You have hurt his pride. You have insulted his intelligence, his judgment, and his self-respect, and he'll resent your triumph. That will make him strike back. But it will never make him, it will never make him want to change his mind. If you argue about faith, you're never going to win that fight. 
A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion. Wiser words were never spoken. Jesus didn't argue with the man. He just simply probed the man's position. He asked the man questions. He showed respect for the man by showing interest in his opinion. You know, when he said, you know, uh, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And how do you understand the nature of the law? It kept also Jesus from answering questions the man was not asking. He probed a little deeper. What do you mean exactly? And he began to ask him questions. It's a powerful way. If somebody wants to talk to you about faith, say, well, what do you believe? And they'll be quick to share with you what they believe. And I noticed something else. They'll often ask you, well, how do you feel about that? And so instead of, you know, arguing your position, you're simply asking their question, which makes it so much more receptive on their part. Then Jesus, you guys are ahead of me. Then Jesus found common ground, common ground. He said, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Just do this and you will live. You know, I often say to our staff and, and, and our leaders get this, that you know, when people are critical of us or, or what we do, I, I say, you know, put yourself in their position. Try to understand where they're coming from. If you heard what they heard and you believed what they believed, you might be of the same opinion. So honor that. These are not bad people trying to do bad things. They're good people who want to do the right thing. So respect where they're coming from. Find common ground. The best conversations occur when you show respect to others. You say, well, isn't that compromise? I don't believe so. Truth has an edge to it. You don't have to worry about truth. Uh, There remained an unspoken question. Just do this and you will live. Oh, that's pretty heavy. You mean I have to do that? I have to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul and my mind, and I have to love my neighbor as myself? Yeah, just do that perfectly, and you will be completely fine with God. Well, I'm not sure I can do that perfectly, was the unanswered question. Truth has power to it. God works on people in unsuspecting ways, in unspoken ways. In fact, the Bible says, as God's truth goes out, the Holy Spirit goes out with that truth. You don't have to always argue somebody. You don't have to chase them down and get them to say uncle and admit that they are wrong. Just share the truth and let it work. And in fact, he uses this analogy. He says, some people plant the seed. Some people cultivate the seed. Some people water the seed. Allow some time. How often do you ever plant something and harvest it the same day? It never happens in nature nor does it happen in matters of truth. Then just a couple other follow-ups. Jesus stressed the importance of truth in practice. Faith that is true is always practical. You know, I venture to say at the seminary, all theology is practical theology. If it's not practical, it's not good theology. He chose an unlikely example, but Jesus brought it down to earth. He wasn't going to argue philosophically with this man. It was not just a theological concept. Actions have authority that words lack. And so he said, well, let me give you an example of how this works. A man that you despise behaved in this way. People that you honor behaved in this way. What do you think about that? The truth of the matter is that faith in action is always more powerful than faith held in theory. It's always a small thing. It's not the great concept. 
It's the personal practice that God cares most about. There's an old saying that people don't care what you know if they don't know that you care. You know, you are the means by which God will bring people to him, not with your truth, not with your philosophy, not with your theology, but by your action. Somebody has said, you know, you may be the only person, uh, the only Bible that somebody will ever read as you live out the things that you believe. When we reduce religion to just a series of principles, we limit its impact. Here's how the Bible declares it in James chapter 2. What good is it, brothers or sisters, if you claim to have faith and you even have great knowledge of it, but you have no deeds to back it up with, if it's not evident in your life? People don't believe that. Can such a faith save even you or anyone else? Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Jesus stressed the importance of faith practiced. He also indicated that the most powerful faith is faith that is personally expressed. Uh, Tip O'Neill one time, uh, they're having an argument about who should be Speaker of the House now. During Ronald Reagan's era, Tip O'Neill was uh, a Democrat. He was Speaker of the House, and he was famous for saying, all politics is local. All faith is best expressed personally. I don't care what denomination you're a part of. What do you believe? Your denomination is not going to save me. It's not going to help me. I don't care what church you belong to. I don't care what your pastor teaches. You know, how does that find expression in your life? Now, I'm not saying those things don't matter. You should be a part of a church that's faithful. Uh, You should probably know the theological leaning of the denomination that you're a part of. But more importantly, what do you believe? Because I can tell you some churches that look on the outside very, very traditional, very, very solid, but I happen to know that their pastors are uh, far afield of good, conservative, faithful teaching. But they have the appearance of being secure. And then there are those who uh, look very progressive and very liberal, but yet are very biblically sound. The denomination a pastor won't save somebody, won't save their friends, won't save you. What do you believe? That's where Jesus wanted to go with this man. Not in theory, what must I do to be saved, but what do you believe? Jesus ended it with a very personal question. Of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which do you think was truly the godly one? To this man who fell among the robbers. The expert in the law had to admit the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do that yourself. And so I began the message by asking, you know, are you a lifelong learner? You know, are, are, are you still open to the idea that God might prompt you to know more and to be more useful and to receive greater blessing in your life? Are you willing to refuse to argue, more interested in learning from others, even through their questions, uh, even through their concerns. You know, we we recently, um, I preached a sermon a while back that that, uh, somebody took some offense at and said, I just felt like you were preaching to me. And I thought, well, duh, that's what I do. You know, and, and, and yet with Pastor Garrett, I said, but this is exactly the kind of person that we want to reach. I wonder how I could have shared that differently that they wouldn't have felt so condemned. 
You know, it's okay to feel your weakness. And it's, it's certainly proper for us to realize that we're sinful people and, and we need uh, the value of Jesus Christ. What could I have said and how could I have said it differently that that person would have been attracted to Jesus rather than repulsed by him? You know, finally, I still want to be that person who learns. I still want to refuse to argue. In fact, the whole time I was talking to that person, I just kept saying to myself, don't be defensive, don't be defensive. Listen to this person, listen to this person. And then watch for common ground. You know, what makes sense that they're sharing with you that you can affirm and you can agree with and thereby show them some respect so that you can have an actual honest conversation? Are you putting your faith into action or is it just a theory? Is it just a theology that you hold and have memorized? You know, there's a story in the Bible, in fact, it's also found in James, where he said, don't be like a person who looks in a mirror and then walks away from the mirror and leaves their image on the wall. Instead, put your faith into practice. And when you do that, you're a constant reminder to you of the things that you value and the things that you believe because of Jesus Christ in your life. And not only that, you're a witness to others and you bring glory to God. So the idea of putting it into action is so important for you. It's so important for others. Otherwise, you're just like a person who checks themselves only once a day. And then no longer knows how you look. And finally, keep it personal. You know, you're not promoting a church. You're not promoting a pope. You're not promoting a denomination. You're not promoting a certain pastor. Not Billy Graham. Not Max Lucado. You know, the most important uh, influence that somebody will ever feel in your family, among your sphere of influence, is you the way you express your kindness, the way you demonstrate the love of God as displayed towards you in Christ Jesus. May God grant it for us all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that and not only have you so loved the world that you brought about you know, uh, the remission of our sins through your own sacrificial death, but you've also revealed wisdom in, in how to interact with people that will cause me to be a lifelong learner, that I can grow from that and, and others can grow and others can be attracted rather than repulsed by you. You know, help me, Lord, in my sinfulness uh, to do that better every day, to admit my failures and, and, and to learn from them, not, not to dwell on them, but to move on from them. And thank you for your grace that enables me to do that. Lord, bless us all in this process as we build upon your truth, your love, and your compassion toward each and every one. We pray it in Christ. Amen.